Jesus is coming. John's a forerunner. Jesus is coming. His job is to prepare the way, make straight paths. Think of it as a runway, right? And you have a plane that's going to be landing. Jesus is the plane, metaphorically speaking here. And John's in charge of the ground crew. And he's like, look, Jesus is showing up. And he's representing, he is God in the flesh. And I know what God is like, because I've read the Old Testament and he's like, there's a fire that devours before him. He comes and he will not be silent. Yes, he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love, but he's also almighty creator God. And he's coming not to condemn the world, but to save it. But at the same time, there's, it's a big deal and he wants to be taken seriously. So let's get all the debris off the runway. Let's clear that thing off. Let's make sure all the people are in place with those stick things, the light sticks, you know? And what he's talking about here, right? It's not literal in the sense of like that Jesus was gonna come in and land in Galilee, you know what I mean, next to the Jordan River, like swoop in or something. That would have been cool, but he didn't. But like, he's talking about preparing our hearts. He's saying, Jesus is coming, right? He's showing up and he's coming to save you and he loves you, but he also, want certain things from you. He also is asking you to lead a life worthy of the calling you received. So in your heart, clear away the debris, clear the runway, get rid of all the things that would impede him in some way from a clean landing. So my senior year of high school, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, his parents were leaving town for the weekend. So what do you do? You throw a party. So he was going to throw a party. Didn't want it to get out of control, but he invited a fair amount of people. And so there were about 20 or so of us guys that were planning on going that were also planning on staying the night there. Uh, and so, you know, we get there, and I don't know. It wasn't huge. There's was probably maybe 40 to 50 people there, uh, which maybe that is bigger now thinking about it. It's a lot of people in a house. It didn't, some, I was at some other ones that were ragers, and this was nothing like that. So um, but people are doing different things. So uh, it, popular at the time, Sega Genesis, NBA Live on Sega Genesis, if you remember that. So I had a bunch of friends playing that. Uh, people were, you know, playing music and kind of like half dancing, half talking, half whatever. Uh, and then there were some people, uh, some people doing some things they probably shouldn't have been doing, uh, various things in various places in the house. And all this is going on. But one of my, it was my best friend, uh, in high school, and we were kind of wired similar, even though we were both very into sports, we were also both uh, bookworms and really had an appreciation for literature and for film and for music and art in general and all this stuff. So we're just kind of like there, um, and we stumble across, of all things, as we're just in the house, a chessboard. So what do you do at a party? You play chess. And so we're like, hey, and this is just a normal thing to us, we're like, hey, yeah, this is whatever. This stuff is, you know, whatever. Let's get let's get a game of chess going. We were both played quite a bit at the time, and so we get the board out and set it up and proceed to start playing. And it's not a uh, it's not a quick game. It gets really intense. He's pretty good. I'm okay, but I had a, I was having a decent night there. And so we go and we go and we go, and it's just a battle. And there's nobody really clearly pulling ahead, and it just continues to go. And you've never been in a situation where you're just really intense, whether you're studying or whether you're you know preparing for something, or even if you're just having fun and you look at the the clock you're watching you're like oh my gosh like that's it's that much time has gone by but you're just caught up in the moment and so as we're playing we go and I realize this is a long game and so after right about three hours no joke three hours we call a draw call a draw nobody was able to 
pull out a victory. It was clear with the situation. We were both down to, we had our king, uh, he had a king, we both had pawns, but it was going to play itself out where we knew there was no way anybody was going to win. So we're like, eh, let's just call it a tie. So at a party, we play chess for three hours and we tied. And I still remember it and I still have fond memories of it. Now I mentioned that because you may not think that sounds like fun. To me, that was a blast. My hope this morning is that what I do, you enjoy, because to me, this is gonna be a blast this morning. It's gonna be my kind of fun. I've talked about this before. To some of you, it may not be your kind of fun. I joked this week with a couple friends that I think I may set the Guinness Book World Records this morning for the most scripture ever used in a sermon. You can decide that for yourself. There were some comments from the staff about the number of slides, and I said, look, it's just scripture, okay? It's just scripture that just takes up space. So I say that, because, take a deep breath, all right? Take a deep breath, stretch, do what you need to do. It's Super Bowl Sunday. You're gonna eat a lot of food, so let's burn off some calories just through a mental exercise, okay? And to stick with me, I promise it will work together. I will weave it in all this stuff, and it'll make sense, but we're gonna go through some stuff. Is that okay? Did you show up ready to, to learn to be transformed? All right, so as Pastor Jordan mentioned, Week two of a two-week series called The Love of God and the Fear of God. Last week, we talked about the love of God. I'll review that in just a second. But I want to re-read you the series summary. Don't normally do this, but I wanted to do it because I think it really sets and establishes a good framework and context for last week and also for this week. It was the heart behind this little mini-series, and it says this. Over the past 150 years in the West, two primary images of God have dominated both the social and the religious landscape. The first is that of a tyrannical ruler who is sitting in heaven with a storehouse of lightning bolts just waiting to throw them down at those who step out of line. The second is that of a lovesick God who is infatuated with humans to the point that he has no backbone and condones any and all behavior out of some divine fear of abandonment. It goes without saying that both images are extreme and that neither present an accurate picture of the biblical God as revealed in and through Jesus Christ. In this two-week miniseries, we will work to present a balanced picture of a God who loves us deeply, but is also to be taken seriously in terms of who he is and what he asks of us. So last week, we talked about the love of God. If you missed it, I would really highly encourage you to go check it out. Reason being is these two things are intended to go together. If you just hear today, I think it will be greatly beneficial for you, but I think it will be that much more meaningful and powerful and impactful if you combine it with last week. The idea of this series, as I mentioned in that summary, is to sort of like juxtapose, but yet contrast and weave a little bit of these two extremes together. So over here you have this extreme of the, you know, lightning bolt God, the angry, upset God. And he's just constantly looking for people to punish and creative ways to punish them, to make their lives miserable for arbitrary small things, right? And he's just always angry. And then over here you have this overcorrection that's happened where you have this lovesick God who he just is cool with whatever, any behavior you want to do, any ways that you want to act, however you want to live your life, it's all about you, you do you, and I'm, I love you, so I'll just permit it, right? And that's kind of what's happened. You have these two extremes. What we're trying to do is take both of those and proclaim that in each of them, there's a little bit, right, of sort of truth, but we're trying to move both towards the center. So last week, we talked about how God does love us tenderly, 
He loves us radically. He loves us deeply. But he also loves us fiercely. And he loves us intensely. And we're told that he disciplines those that he loves. And he corrects those that are his sons and his daughters. And he's working in our lives, right, to transform us. And sometimes that involves turning over the proverbial tables in our hearts, upsetting things in our lives so that he can set them in order, pruning us, right, so that we can draw closer to him, pruning us so that we can produce more fruit. It's not an act of correction in a negative sense. It's not an act of retribution for sin or some sort of punishment. It's an act of correction because he loves us, because he sees the potential in us, because we're created in his image, and he wants us to be fruitful and to thrive. And so he does those things. And Hebrews says it's not always pleasant in the moment, but if you endure it patiently and see it for what it is, it's going to produce radical fruit in your life. But we're told in our culture that any sort of pain, any sort of suffering, any sort of discomfort, right, is something to be avoided, something to be pushed back on, something to be eliminated as quickly as we possibly can. The scripture says don't do that. If you're struggling in life, and I'm not talking about illnesses, right? We talked about God doesn't send cancer to somebody. He's not doing that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about times in your life when he disciplines you and you know, you're like, yeah, that's, I need that. Like that's, I've been slipping in this area and he's doing that because he loves you. The worst thing God can possibly do is to leave us alone. If you've gone through your life and you've never tasted the correction, the chastisement, the discipline of Lord, that's concerning. That's concerning. It's something that we should almost celebrate when we feel like we're being corrected because we understand, oh my gosh, we're his sons, we're his daughters, he loves us. This is not pleasant but he loves me that much that he's not willing to let me go, continue on in my ways. So we're trying to draw that one closer, right? The love of God closer to the center. Today, it's the fear of God. We'll talk about that in a second. This misconception of the fear of God that I talked about in the series summary is that God is angry, that God is upset. If you grew up in certain mainline religions, and I'm not trying to pick on any specifically, but if you grew up in strict Roman Catholicism and some other mainline denominations, it's guilt-based, right? It is guilt-based, it is anxiety-inducing. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and it's really no different in a lot of ways than Roman Catholicism in the sense that it was anxiety-inducing. You're constantly walking around, like walking on eggshells, thinking that you might slip, right? There's constant talk about sin, sin. You gotta watch out for sin all the time. The problem is it's like everywhere and you don't even know what sin is and you feel like inside of you, you're trying to avoid things, but you can't. And you just constantly feel like God is angry with you. Pastor Jordan talked about this last week a little bit in his communion thought when he talked about how like he kind of felt like growing up that how he felt about himself was representative of how God felt about him. Right, so anytime we feel like we're not doing what we should do in terms of our devotions, or we're not doing this, or we did this thing wrong, that God also suddenly switches his mood, right? Because God's just as moody and as fragile as we are, right? He's just as given to behavioral stuff, and he's like, I, can't, I cannot believe, Jordan, that you did that thing. Oh my gosh. Like, it just blows my mind that you would miss your devotions, and I'm so upset with you. Right? Like, that's not how it works, but that's how many of us may have been raised and how we've experienced this is God who's just constantly upset, constantly angry. He's not in a good mood, right? It takes so much to get him in a good mood, but we don't really know what that is because it's always out there somewhere and there's not really a way that we can ever achieve it. So we just constantly walk around feeling like we're sort of under his thumb. He's displeased with us. We can never measure up all these types of things, right? And it's all fear-based. So we're gonna take that one today 
And we're going to try to move that one to the middle some. It's interesting, right, that this image of God as a God of judgment and wrath and displeasure was pervasive at all because it's nowhere to be found in Scripture in terms of the way that it's been presented, even in the Old Testament. So now here we go. We're going to start getting into our Scriptures, okay? Even in the Old Testament, with which modern scholars, modern theologians have really tried to do something called reconciling the Old Testament God or reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the violence, you know, in the Old Testament with Jesus and who they see. And I think it's a really a lost cause, and there's no need to reconcile because the God we see in the Old Testament isn't different than the person we see revealed in Jesus, right? It's a mistake, and it's a misunderstanding of Old Testament theology in these things. Even in the Old Testament itself, right, many, 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 many times— God is primarily described with the same few characteristics. We see that in Psalm 103.8. This is a very common refrain in the Old Testament that's not just in Psalms. It's many times. And it says this, the Lord is compassionate, right? This is Old Testament. They're talking about Old Testament God. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. So you have those characteristics of of the Old Testament God, the Old Testament authors, right, who are very well aware of the history of Israel, right, and, and what God had done for those people and what God had done to deliver them and all these things and how he had gotten frustrated with them at times, pretty understandably so if you see what they were doing. But even in the midst of all that, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's the description of God in the Old Testament. And Emily read these texts, uh, or mentioned this text in her communion thought this morning. In the New Testament, we see it's continuing with that idea, continuing with that theme of this God, right, of compassion, grace, slow to anger, abounding in love. John 3, 16, and I actually have verse 17, but I forgot to send the, the slide team the, the 17, so you'll know this is both verses. John 3, 16 through 17 says this, For God so loved the world, he so loved the world, right? He wasn't so angry with the world. He wasn't trying to punish them. He so, he so loved us that he gave us his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. 17 is a verse that's so often neglected, but so important for, for what God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So in the Old Testament, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, right? abounding in love. In the New Testament, John writes, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, and he didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it, to save it. Luke 4, verses 14 through 19 is kind of where Jesus gives his mission statement. It's where he launches into his public ministry, if you've seen this last season, season three of The Chosen, I think it's episode three, they depict this right here. It's my favorite episode of all the seasons. If you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to check it out. And Luke records it in chapter four. This is after Jesus has been in the wilderness, been tempted by the devil and fasted for 40 days. Luke 4, 14 through 19 says this, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, so he goes to his hometown, and it says where he's been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So he's about to read an Old Testament prophecy about himself. And he says, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is what's known as his mission statement. He makes it so. It's powerful. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Why? Because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to do what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Old Testament, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. New Testament, John 3, he so loved the world that he sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus himself, as he's about to launch his ministry, says, the Lord has anointed me. The Spirit is on me. Why? So I can proclaim good news to the poor. So I can give sight to the blind. So I can set the oppressed free. So I can release those who have been in prison. And so I can proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? So this is the love of God, the radical radical love of God that doesn't just stand far off, but gives and gives his only son. That's a fiercely intense kind of love. These things are true in the absolute deepest sense of what the word true means. They're absolutely true. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He so loved the world. He is the year right now of the Lord's favor. We'll talk about that in a little bit. It's so true. But there's another piece to this. There's another piece to this because we are, after all, talking about the almighty creator God of the universe. The one who brought order to chaos and created the world. The one who set their stars in place and still holds them in place. Who created the universe and the galaxies that created us, like Psalm 139 says, who formed us in our mother's womb and knit us together. And if you study just the human body and the intricacies and how everything functions together, it's unbelievable, isn't it? It's genius, genius stuff. And we joked last week about, you know, the duckbill platypus, right? Some of you even looked it up because you showed me after. You didn't know what it was. But it's like, this is the God who did all these things, this genius, all-powerful God who created things and sustains things. Every breath you breathe is because of God. Right? So, yes, he loves us, but he's also God, and we're not. He's also the definition of holy. He's also in his own way, even though he welcomes us in, he's also set apart. And we're going to look at that this morning and what that means for us. We're going to take a journey, all right? That was not just the intro, don't worry. But we're going to take a journey of the next half hour or so from Exodus all the way through Revelation, right? We won't hit all the books. We're going to hit a lot. So think about this, the love of God and how he loves us, right? Fiercely, intensely. The fear of God, yes, he's not some angry, vindictive God. He's not, but he is just, he is righteous, he is holy, he is the creator God. And what does that mean? What are the implications of that for us? What are the biblical authors think were the implications of that. How did they see it? So let's start in Exodus with a very famous passage. This is a long chunk, and I'm not going to go verse by verse, but I really want you, if you have a physical Bible today, I would like you to open it, and you can follow along. If you have a Bible app, feel free. 
because I think it's helpful to see these scriptures sometimes, or you can follow on the screen. All of them will be there for you. But this is a famous scene. This is Exodus 19, and this is Moses going to Mount Sinai. This is after the Egypt, or excuse me, after the Israelites have escaped, have been freed from Egypt, and they've left their slavery, and they're headed out on a journey. Right? They know they're heading at some point to a promised land, and Moses has been given charge to lead them, and he needs help. <laughs> he needs help because God literally knows these people are stubborn and obstinate and quick to forget and all these things that you see. So Moses needs help. So we find him in verse 19, excuse me, encountering God, talking with God. It says this in verse 3, Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. Jacob was Israel. And what you are to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. So they saw the plagues that were put upon the Egyptians on Pharaoh's house. And I love this. And how I carried you on eagle's wings. I love that imagery. It's God says that, how I carried you on eagle's wings. And brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. This is God speaking this directly to Moses. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So he tells Moses, go back and share this. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, as people always do when they're excited and they think they can hang. We will do everything the Lord has said. Which if you know the story of Israel, they did not. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. So it's to validate Moses, right? And then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. So he's like, God told me he's gonna come to me in a dense cloud. He's gonna talk to me, not because I need to, I've already talked with him, but so you'll understand I'm the man. Listen to me. What I say is coming straight from the mouth of God. And the Lord said to Moses, go tell the people or go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. This is because of the holiness of God. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Neither sounds particularly fun. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Pretty strong. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. So he's saying, look, I'm coming down, but when I come down, it's kind of a big deal. I'm not doing this because I need to like show all this. It's just the reality of who I am. So make sure they don't get too close or they, you'll have to kill them because it won't be good, Right? After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Let's keep going. Exodus 19, 16 through 19. So that's the scene, right? And on the morning of the third day, so this is after they've consecrated themselves, they know, there was thunder and there was lightning. 
with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Now, Mount Sinai is certainly not Mount Everest, but neither is it a tiny little hill. Some of you may have even been there. Mount Sinai, is, it's a big place, big mountain. And it says the whole mountain was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. Right? Think about this. You're there, you're going to meet with God, which you're already kind of like, uh, I don't want to get too close. And then you see smoke billing up because God is descending on fire and the whole mountain is shaking and there's a loud trumpet blast. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And this is this famous scene, Charlton Heston, old school, ABC, when I was growing up, the Ten Commandments, right? Where God does this and he gives then the Ten Commandments. Then he gives those, as Moses says, I'm here. God's like, good, here are the things. Don't do this, don't do that, right? The Ten Commandments, right? He gives those. So Moses receives those. And then there's a, we're going to skip ahead to Exodus 20, 18 through 20. Exodus 20, 18 through 20. It says this, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. So the mountain is shaking, and so are the people. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Moses, speak to us yourself, and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. What they're saying there is that they saw themselves in the shadow, in the light of a holy God, the creator of the universe. And yes, they were thankful that he loved them and he delivered them from Egypt and that he'd done all these things to spare them and that he had made promises to them about where they were headed and they had a destiny, right? They were going to be a nation set apart. But when they actually come face to face, so to speak, with this same God, they are terrified because of the difference between who they are as fragile, right, humans and who he is as a holy righteous God so much so that they shake and they beg Moses you can say whatever you want to us but don't let God speak to us we can't even handle it it will crush us he's too holy he's too righteous he's too powerful we're thankful he's our God but we can't endure it right to be that close to him so they say don't have God speak to us or we will die now catch what Moses says here this is important. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you. So what? So that the fear of God will be with you. Why? To keep you from sinning. So Moses gives them a very, very specific reason as to why God has shown up in this way and what he's trying to communicate to them. He's saying, I am the God of love, but I am also God. You are not. You might want to take what I've done for you, what I've directed you to do seriously. I want you to have a little bit of healthy fear because I don't want you to wander, right? 
So this is the first time we see sort of God in this way. It happens multiple other times, so let's keep going. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah has a vision. He's taken into the throne room of heaven. It's a famous passage. It's incredibly powerful. He says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. So he sees, he's, he's in a vision, he's seeing heaven. Seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. These are interesting heavenly sort of creatures. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. These are people who are, these are beings who are continually in the presence of God, who have as much of an awareness of who God is as any creature, any person ever. And their response, and we don't know this for sure, this is a theory, right? Is that they have to cover their eyes even because of how blindingly powerful his presence is. And they can't help but issue this refrain over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see this again happen in Revelation. In the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. So we have another shaking, right? This, it was the mountain, now it's the temple of God. It shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Again, we have smoke, right? Woe, this is Isaiah's response to this. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a, a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah is permitted to see this vision of the heavenlies and what he witnesses is so powerful that his response is not just like, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's amazing. Oh man, I can't wait to tell everybody that God brought me in here so I can brag about it, right? His response is, woe to me. Like, I don't know that I can handle this. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm just a man and I've made mistakes and I live among a people that have, made mistakes, and I've seen God. Can you just imagine this, right? It's powerful stuff. Let's keep going with this, with this theme. Psalm 50, verses one through six. We're almost out of the, New Te or the Old Testament already, so like, we're, we're going, okay? The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. For Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. When God shows up, it's not tame. It's not calm. It's not just chill. But because of the holiness of who God is, when he comes, a fire devours before him. A tempest rages around him. Are you picking up a theme 
from Exodus and the mountain and the fire and the smoke and the shaking to Isaiah's vision and the shaking of the temple and the smoke. And now we have David writing in Psalm 50 that when he comes, fire, right, devours before him. Are we seeing, right, the commonality here? So you're like, okay, like the fear of God, I get it. That was a big thing in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's mostly hippie Jesus, right? Like peace and love and a tie-dye shirt, right? And like Birkenstocks and like all these things, like organic everything, you know what I mean? Like that's Jesus, right? Okay, let's talk about that. There was a guy, there was this period it's called the intertestamental period. You don't need to remember that. No quiz. But it's the gap between the last book of the Old Testament when that was completed and when John the Baptist, who was basically the last in the line of Old Testament prophets, shows up on the scene. It's recorded in all the Gospels. Let's see what Matthew says. This is John the Baptist, who Jesus said is the greatest among men to have ever lived, comes in the spirit right, of Elijah and is the forerunner, the way whose job was to sort of get the people ready for Jesus to show up. So, right, if I'm in charge, if let's just say there's a very important person that's going to be coming to New Point Church, and Jordan's putting me in charge, right, of making sure everything is done a certain way, I'm going to want to make sure that everything that I do is in accordance with who this person is, like what they deserve. We want to bless them. We want to make things a very specific way, Right? And so you, my job would be important because it's representing, right, us, but it's also representing, like, what's to come, right? We need to communicate to you guys certain things so you know, like, what's to come. There's a lot. So this is what John's job was. And it says this, in those days, Matthew 3, 1 through 3, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, what was his message? What was his message to prepare the way for Jesus? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let's talk about that really quick. The word repent here is metanoia. Okay, metanoia, sorry. Metanoia. And it means a lot of different things, but it basically means to turn away from one thing and turn toward another, right? So it doesn't just speak to this idea of what I was doing, I'm going to turn away from. It's turning to something very specific, okay? So he's saying, turn away from something and turn toward something else. Now, in a lot of our contexts, we understand repentance as this sort of like confession of sin, confession of wrongdoing. Images always, you know, are sort of brought to mind of people coming to the altar and falling on their hands and their knees and weeping and sobbing because of their sin. Now, I want to say that, that can absolutely be a part of it. Because, and we're going to talk about this a little bit in a few minutes, but in the light of a holy God and who we are, if we realize that we have not had a healthy fear of him and we've been living our lives a certain way, there's a time and a place and the Spirit may stir our hearts to the point where we do fall on our knees and say, woe to me. I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips. I've encountered God and I don't know that I can handle it and I need to turn away and I need to turn toward Okay, that's an important aspect of it, but it doesn't always need to be so emotional, and it doesn't even need to be about sin. It can be that there's certain things in your life that you realize, like, man, that's just, I just have, I've been wasting time here. It wasn't sinful in some way, but it wasn't the best use of 
my time, and I need to turn away from that and turn toward the kingdom. I need to turn toward seeking first the kingdom of God. It can be like that. If repentance was only about sin, we'd have some serious problems because in the Old Testament, it actually says that God repented that he made mankind. This is before he destroys the world with a flood. It's the same word, he repented, right? He realized, yikes, I need to turn away from that and towards something, which is a whole other sermon, right? But know that it's just not about sin only, but that's a big part of it where you're like, okay, it's time to straighten myself up, let God straighten me out. Turn away from this thing and turn towards something. It's a 180, right? And this is he, keep continuing on, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. It's talking about John. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. And what is he calling out essentially? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. Jesus is coming. John's a forerunner. Jesus is coming. His job is to prepare the way, make straight paths. Think of it as a runway, right? And you have a plane that's going to be landing. Jesus is the plane, metaphorically speaking here. And John's in charge of the ground crew. And he's like, look, Jesus is showing up. And he's representing, he is God in the flesh. And I know what God is like, because I've read the Old Testament, and he's like, there's a fire that devours before him. He comes and he will not be silent. Yes, he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love, but he's also almighty creator God. And he's coming not to condemn the world, but to save it. But at the same time, there's a, it's a big deal, and he wants to be taken seriously. So let's get all the debris off the runway. Let's clear that thing off. Let's make sure all the people are in place with those stick things, the light sticks, you know, so that we can bring them in. And I understand all metaphors have a weird ending, so you don't draw it out too far, but you get what I'm saying, right? Where it's like, let's make, and what he's talking about here, right, it's not literal in the sense of like that Jesus was going to come in and land in Galilee, you know what I mean, next to the Jordan River, like swoop in or something. That would have been cool, but he didn't, but like, He's talking about preparing our hearts. He's saying, Jesus is coming, right? He's showing up, and he's coming to save you, and he loves you, but he also wants certain things from you. He also is asking you to lead a life worthy of the calling you received. So in your heart, clear away the debris. Clear the runway. Get rid of all the things that would impede him in some way from a clean landing. That's what John's saying, right? So he's talking about it seriously, so seriously that some people came out to be baptized by him, and his response was not, oh, cool. His response was, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from what? The coming wrath. The coming wrath. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and then he has some demands for them as to what they're supposed to do, and it's turning away from sin that they were, had in their lives. He's talking about that. We think of Jesus again, this hippie image of Jesus, but Jesus certainly didn't think of himself that way, nor the New Testament writers. John 14, one through nine. I'm not gonna comment a lot on this, but I want you to read it because it's important. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas 
as he always does, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answers famously, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which that should be taken seriously. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not saying I'm different somehow, right? He's not saying all that stuff in the Old Testament, two-thirds of the Bible that you read, that's not applicable anymore. That's not really who I am. Like, I'm completely different. And he's saying, no, 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 no. All that stuff you read in the Old Testament about who the Father is, yes, I'm compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love, and I've not come to, to condemn the world but to save it. But I am also holy, and I'm also righteous, and I'm also set apart, and I'm also God, by the way. Right? I'm also the one who the world was created in and through and, and sustains it by my very being. So what I'm telling you, Philip, is if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So watch how I behave. Watch what I say. Watch how I act. Watch what I teach. And you'll have a really comprehensive, full picture of who the Father is, of who God is. He's come to show us that image. Other language says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. That's hugely helpful because people try to sort of separate Father God and Jesus as though they're two completely different beings. Father God has this sort of like, you know, angry bent to him, but Jesus is easy to get along with because, again, he's, you know, the chill guy who just sits at the party and, you know, listens to music and whatever, right? He's just calm. He's just what you guys do, you guys do you. But the problem is that's just not what the Scripture says even remotely, and that's not what Jesus himself said. So we should probably pay attention. If Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we should probably pay attention to what Jesus does and says, right? So what does Jesus do and say? Let's look at a couple. We're getting close to the end. How, how's everybody doing? Maybe we're getting close to the end. Maybe we're not. What time does the game start? <laughs> okay. Let's get through these. Let's get through these. Luke 5, 1 through 8, let's talk about the New Testament, right? The fear of God in the New Testament. We have Moses and the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We have Isaiah, right? We have the psalmist, fire devours before him, a tempest rages. Well, what's that look like in the New Testament? Was Jesus always just like, again, you know, calm? One day as Jesus was standing by the lake, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets, he got into one of the boats, the one belonged to Simon, whose name would become Peter, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said, Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Famous story, right? Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've heard this story in all likelihood. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Jesus works this miracle, right? Astonishing. Please take careful note of Peter's response in light of Isaiah 6. What does Peter say? When he saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and says, Go away from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man. 
Isaiah in the Old Testament encounters God in heaven, says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. Peter in the New Testament, because of a catch of fish, is standing face to face with God. And his reaction is the exact same thing. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I can't bear who I am in light of who you are. Your holiness, your glory, your righteousness in light of my sin and my failings and my faults. I can't even take it. It's, it's overwhelming me. Mark 4, 35 through 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. This is after... Again, he's taught and done a bunch of crazy stuff. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and suddenly a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. You can just see he's like, God, are you serious right now, guys? Like, wipes sleep from his eyes. Like, ugh. And he rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet. And there's exclamation points here, by the way. And this is the same rebuke, the same word that he would use when he rebuked the demons. Right? So there's a demonic element to this storm. It's trying to take them out. Quiet. Be still. Love how simple Jesus always prayed. It wasn't even a prayer, just a command. Then what happens? The wind died down. <laughs> And it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, and I can imagine him as he's getting his cushion back out to lay back down. He's like, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Catch this. Catch this is New Testament. Countering Jesus. What happens? They were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I've heard it said that they were more afraid after Jesus calmed the storm than they were before. Because the storm is a storm is a storm, and you understand in that moment you're trying to bail water and you're trying to figure out how to save your life, right? And that's, you're used to that on some level, even though it's terrifying and it's exceptional and it's fury. You're used to that on some level. What you're not used to is a guy standing up and going, peace be still, and boom, it's still. It's Isaiah 6 all over again. It's Exodus 18 all over again. It's Peter encountering Jesus after the catch. They were terrified and asked each other, who, who is this? Wait a second, wait a second. We know he's done some stuff and he's made some, you know, bread multiply and he's healed some people, but wait a second. This is God. Kind of a big deal. Man. Okay, let's go. Matthew 24. Jesus wanted to be taken seriously. He loves us. He absolutely loves us. And because he loves us, he issued a lot of warnings. Because he knew who we were, too. So Jesus did not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in the hearts of men. He knew that one minute, and he saw this, the people would praise him for his phenomenal sermon. And as soon as he said something two minutes later they didn't like, because it didn't fit within their whatever framework, they would curse him. None of us have ever done that, so I'm, I mean, we're all good. 
Jesus left the temple and was walking away. So he's had this powerful moment, by the way, with his disciples. He's walking away when his disciples came up to him and call his attention to the buildings. This is the second temple, and it's massive. We talked about this some before. Do you see all these things, he asked? Because they're trying to be like, Jesus, look at this. It's amazing, you know? It's the Eiffel Tower. It's the Mona Lisa. It's whatever, you know? It's an amazing thing. Do you see all these things, he asked. So he's like, yeah, I do. Do you see them? Okay. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on one another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, he's talking about something that did happen not long after that, but he's also here in a second. He's going to talk about another event, the end of the age, and he makes that clear. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And, what, and then they asked, so when will the stones, right, be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they pick up some sort of like double prophetic meaning in what he said. They kind of get it, right? They're intuiting it. They just don't fully understand. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginnings of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. They're like, well, why did we ask that question? <laughs> I could have just left it alone, Jesus. Like, you know, you could have just said in the year such and such. We didn't need all this detail. At that time, many, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Do you see he's kind of making a point here? This isn't a little deal. Many people, many prophets, many false messiahs. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. We've talked about this before, right? I swear it feels like this is, we're living in this, and I never say that kind of thing, but I've, in my personal life, it just seems like so many people have turned away from the faith. It's unbelievable to go into false teaching, and the love of most will grow cold. Where there was love, now there's not, and this is even amongst Christians. Christians, because they've seen the increase of wickedness, they've become more judgmental, more harsh, and their love has been turned off, right? Which is not what we're supposed to do. Then he makes a really strong statement. Don't miss this. But... The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Why would he issue a warning like that if it was just, oh, I'm going to mess with some people right now, but if it was just once saved, always saved? Why would he make it so clear? Why would it be repeated over and over again in the New Testament to make sure that you finish the race? He who endures to the end will be saved. In the midst of all this stuff, he's like, you might want to stick with me. You might want to not take a casual approach to following me. You might not want to just think like, I prayed a prayer once and I go to church, so I'm in. You might want to be aware of how many people will be deceived and apparently how easy it is that they were deceived. You might want to not turn your love off and you might want to stay faithful to the end. If you have to just grab a hold of me, right? Like a pole in a tornado and you're just clinging to it, like whatever it takes, He tells, that's a big deal, stand firm to the end. Matthew 25, one chapter later. At that time, and he's talking about, again, he's continuing on, right, about his second coming. 
At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. He's talking about himself now. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, which is they get the wicks ready and put the oil in. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on, while they were on their way to buy the oil, so they hadn't prepared, hadn't taken enough concern for what might happen, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him in the wedding banquet, which is the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven as a banquet many times. And the door was shut. The door was shut. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, he says, because you don't know the day or the hour. It's the fear of the Lord. It's being ready for his coming, not with an anxiety-inducing type of mentality, but with a seriousness, with a reverence, with a holy awe of who he is and the reality of his coming. When Jesus came and he announced his mission, we're almost done here. When Jesus came and he announced his mission in Luke 4, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He tells those things. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's what we're living in right now. We are living in the time, present tense, not literal one year, obviously. It's a season. We are living in the time of the Lord's favor. We're living in this time where the door is still open, where the bridegroom hasn't yet come, where there's still opportunity. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, if you've never decided to turn away from your own way of living and turn towards Jesus, there's still opportunity for you to do that because this is still the year of the Lord's favor. Through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's made a way. You can do that, and that's what we're living in right now. But when he comes back, that will end the year of the Lord's favor. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says in this parable of the wise virgins, the foolish virgins, he says that the door, they said, open the door for us, right? Why? Because the door was shut. Anybody, anybody think about Noah? Noah was in many ways a precursor to this same idea. Noah took forever to build his ark. And in that time, people had all kinds of opportunities to repent. They had all kinds of opportunities to turn away from their lives and turn towards God. But of course, nobody did. Nobody believed him. But when the rains come and Noah slides that gigantic door shut, it's no longer the year of the Lord's favor. Now it is the year of the Lord's judgment. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. That the door at some point will be shut. People think it's going to be, we live like it's going to be whatever, no big deal. Jesus warns us over and over again, it's kind of a big deal. You don't want to be caught without oil in your lamp. You don't want to be asleep when he shows up. You don't want to just be thinking, I'll have plenty of time to do this. Because at some point when you don't know it, or when you've gone off and done something else, he's going to show up, the door shuts, it ain't going to be pretty. 
Tim, if you guys want to go ahead and come up. I appreciate your patience this morning. I knew this might get a little long, but we're getting there. Is everybody hanging? Everybody okay? Okay, okay. I told you this was my kind of fun. If you're, hopefully you're, I don't know if this is fun is the right thing I'm asking of you, but at least compelled, right? There's been a movement for a while. It's been going on for a long time, um, at least the last 20 years or so. Group of people, and I'm not trying to slam them at all because I love lots of them, but um, called the Red Letter Christians. Red Letter Christians, the idea, right, is that their primary focus is on the red letters. That's what Jesus said, right, in your Bibles. What Jesus says is in red. And that's cool, like absolutely. Read the Gospels, read the things Jesus said. Take Jesus seriously. The problem that I've seen with this movement is they forget that Jesus also has a lot of red letters in a book called Revelation, where he also says some stuff. And this is not something he said, but I encourage you to read it on your own, Revelation. But I wanna talk about when the door closes. And it's no longer the year of the Lord's favor. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. Right? This, again, this imagery. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Look, I don't think, I don't believe, scripture is pretty clear that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love, that Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and sight for the blind and recovery, right? Of freedom for those who have been imprisoned and all these things, the good news to the poor. But he's also God and he's also to be taken seriously. And there's also a time coming when the year of his Lord's favor will be over. And if you're not found in the book of life, if you're not lined up with Jesus and you're not loving and serving him and you're not putting all of your faith in him, it's probably not great. Because John 3.16 and 3.17 say some awesome stuff, but let's look at what 18 says. 18 says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. John 3.16 is great. John 3.17 is great. But John 3.18 doesn't get as much airtime. I doubt you'll see a giant banner today at the Super Bowl with John 3.18 hanging on it. And I get it, like we brought, that's probably not the best way. Maybe it should say John 3.16-18 <laughs> so people read all three in context. All right, last thing, last one, last thing. Hebrews 12, I'm just gonna read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us. He's talking to Christians here, right? And the sin that so easily entangles us. Let's turn a 180, let's get away from that. Let's take Jesus seriously. Yeah, you might be, you might be saved, quote unquote, but let's not just like take that you know, like for granted and like just go through the motions. 
Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Skip down, check this out. Told you I'd bring it all together. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. He's talking about Mount Sinai, Exodus that is burning with fire, to darkness, to gloom, and to storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But, so he's saying, that's not the God you've come to, right? Right, you don't have to, that's not how God shows up anymore. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, those whose names are written in heaven, skipping down. Listen, okay, so it's all good. He's like, look, it's not that anymore. It's not this terrifying God, right? You can come boldly before the throne room of grace because of Jesus who made a way. So don't worry about that. But, but, go to the next slide if you would. He finishes with this. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. So look, you can come him and you can hear him. But pay attention, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things so that what cannot be shaken, and that's the kingdom we're receiving, will remain. Now listen, the last thing, I'm gonna close with this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us do what? Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. New Testament a consuming fire, a fire devours before him. He will come back and he's to be taken seriously. Now is the time. So two things as we close. Number one, if you're already a believer this morning and you've just been sort of going through the motions, let's let today be the last time you do that because we serve a God who is a consuming fire, who is to be worshiped, to be revered, to be in awe of. And if you've just been taking it like not seriously, like I don't, whatever church, this is fine. I don't really need to do all the things or go after it in the ways really. I'm just, I'll coast through. I would advise against that heavily. Today's the day to repent. It doesn't need to be tearful. It might be to turn and go. Number two, if you're here this morning, we rarely do this, almost never. But if you're here this morning and you are you've not, decided to follow Jesus, I want to encourage you to make today the day. To make today the day. We're gonna close with worship. I would invite you, either one, whichever one you are, if you're somebody that just needs time to, to repent and turn around that you're a Jesus follower, but you've kind of been living flat, you can get on your knees in front of your chair. You can stay seated. You can come down to the altar. It's always open. If you're someone that wants to receive Jesus, same thing. I'm going to stand over here. I'll actually have Pastor Jordan come over here. Well, I'll go over there. You're already there. I'll go over here. If you're someone that wants to receive Jesus, don't be shy. Now's not the time to be shy. Stand boldly and come and say, I need Jesus. Today's the day I want to find him. 
I want to be in the Lamb's book of life. All right, let's sing. He is worthy of it all.